This free program is paid for by the listener members of KPFK. If you're not already a member, consider joining with us and keep free speech alive. You're going to love this. Just love it. Oh, it never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. What? Me? Scared? Oh, yes. Here I am. Finally, your long national nightmare is over. Either that or it's just begun. Yes, we're back. <laughs> this is your Bradcast, and I am Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, once again back occupying your public airwaves uh, after a month-long hiatus here for our fun drive at KPFK. And uh, boy, did I miss you, but thank you for the support of the station. Thank you for uh, supporting your public airwaves here at KPFK over the past month. Let's uh, let's try not to do that again. It must have worked well because uh, I've got a new headset here. That's cool. You know, prior to this, the the equipment here in the studio is so crappy that <clears throat> instead of a headso- headset, we I would just have my producer Desi Doyen uh, scream to me in my ear what it, what it was that I was saying. I couldn't hear a word. So now we got a new headset out of it. That works. Okay, welcome back. Glad to have you with me here on uh, Pacifica's KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org and the radio or not dot com network. I am delighted to be back. I wish I could say I was away and resting for the past month. I haven't been. There has been a lot going on, a lot that it has been driving me crazy that I haven't been able to hear to tell, uh, haven't been here to tell you about. So what we're going to try to do over the next, uh, it may take us about a month to catch up from all the stuff that we missed over the past uh, month, but we'll try to drop in what we can along the way. We'll get caught up by the time this election season is done. Folks who know me, folks who know the work I do at bradblog.com and here on KPFK know that I am much more interested in... um, Well, not the horse race so much, but the track conditions. That's what we cover because that has as much effect on the election as anything else, uh, including yesterday during Super Tuesday. We're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later in the show. Of course, last night you saw Romney reportedly, if you believe the voting machines, you saw Romney win in Ohio, barely, in Virginia, in Vermont, in Massachusetts, Alaska, and the caucuses in Ohio. So I guess he's well on the way to his nomination. Wait, what? Huh? Rick Santorum won Oklahoma, Tennessee, North Dakota's caucus? Newt Gingrich won Georgia? Man, are these guys, uh, these guys are a mess. And I'll tell you, I have been talking for months, months about a brokered convention in Tampa in August. 
this year. People thought I was crazy. And now that's all we hear about is brokered convention, brokered convention. So maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. I've also, like I said, got a lot of stuff I got to catch up with. I got some news on Charlie White. The uh, voter fraud felon in Indiana who is the literally voter fraud, not election fraud, but voter fraud, who also happens to be the secretary of state of Indiana. He has now been found guilty of three felony counts of voter fraud, six felony counts overall. And just wait until you hear what his punishment is. The secretary of state of Indiana. <sighs> A little bit later in the show. Also a little bit later, some good news out of Wisconsin, where a judge yesterday has put a temporary injunction on the photo ID restrictions against voters up there in advance of the April primary up in Wisconsin. That can only be good news. We also saw uh, some folks turned away from the polls. We saw we'll have uh, actually a little bit later. I hope to have a, a, a clip from a, a U.S. Marine who was turned away from the polls in Tennessee, where they're just instituting their polling place photo ID restrictions for the first time. He was turned away because he refused to show his photo ID in a uh, in a protest against this outrageous new voter suppression law in Tennessee. And as we are seeing all over the country now, breaking news as we're coming into the studio today, uh, the uh, uh, similar polling place photo ID restriction has passed in Pennsylvania. Uh, unbelievably. Uh, so, uh, we'll, we'll see what that effect will be. That's just breaking. We'll try to get to, uh, some more on that a little bit later. But, uh, I wanted to, uh, start out here with a story that has gotten completely lost this week. Entirely lost this week, frankly. Uh, um, amongst the Sturm and Drong over Rush Limbaugh and contraception here in 2012. Uh, incredibly enough, uh, we had uh, our attorney general, and just before uh, the hiatus, a month or so ago, the last time I was on the air here on KPFK, Eric Holder had given a speech down at the uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson Library down in Austin about voting rights and about how the Department of Justice was going to be taking a more aggressive stand to protect them. Now, we will talk uh, in the coming weeks about whether he meant it and whether he's actually uh, uh, taking that more aggressive stance, but I lauded him for that position. Well, now we pick up a month later, and Eric Holder is giving another speech. This Monday, he gave an address at the uh, Northwestern University Law School about the, uh, the, see, see, I almost said the Bush administration's terrorism policy. I might as well have said that. The Obama administration's terrorism policy. Uh, which looks a hell of a lot like the Bush administration's terrorism policy. Uh, this was, uh, as he said, how we will stay true to America's founding and enduring promises of security, justice, and liberty. Oh, really? Will we? Um, <laughs> my, my guest uh, today may have some thoughts on that, as, as might I. Marcy Wheeler is the uh, great blogger, <clears throat> excuse me, otherwise known as Empty Wheel from EmptyWheel.net. She has been covering legal issues around national security and presidential politics for years. She's also the author of Anatomy of Deceit, How the Bush Administration Used the Media to Sell the Iraq War and Out a Spy. Marcy Wheeler, welcome to the broadcast on KPFK. 
Hey, Brad, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Okay, before we get into the meat of this, and I've got a couple of clips from Holder, uh, let me just say that uh, basically... Uh, or perhaps most troublingly, uh, what Holder was saying uh, in this speech at the beginning of the week, uh, Monday in uh, in Chicago, is that there is a difference between due process and judicial process. For anybody who thought that uh, due process was the same as judicial, apparently they're completely different. You will explain to us how they're different, but before you do, uh, this is sort of the way last night that Stephen Colbert summed up the uh, Obama administration's uh, uh, due process or judicial process, however you might want to describe it. The current process is apparently, first, the president meets with his advisors and decides who he can kill. Then, he kills them. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, Marcy Wheeler, uh, it, 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 that's just about it, isn't it? Well, you know... He actually reviews the intelligence, he and his buddies, but that's as far as it goes because it's not even, I mean, Eric Holder on Monday made a big deal out of congressional oversight, and he exaggerated what kind of congressional oversight the killing of American citizens is getting to, so pretty much the president and his close advisors. Uh, yeah, it's, it's with, with nobody else looking in, and even when they talk about going to Congress, congressional oversight... Uh, Marcy, correct me if I'm wrong, but when they go to correct, uh, congressional oversight, aren't these these uh, the, these top secret intelligence uh, briefings that even if there is something troubling that occurs within them, members of Congress can't actually do anything about? They can't actually talk about them. Well, the intelligence committees, which again is you know what. Uh, 35 people out of both houses of Congress, maybe 45, um, they they were briefed in advance about Alaki being targeted. But they weren't given, they were given kind of a big overview of the legal issues, presumably some intelligence, but they, but right after they got that briefing, it was inadequate. And Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon said, I have some questions, such as, how much evidence is needed? Really big question, right? I mean, that goes to Stephen Colbert's issue. Right. And, and we're talking about, and Marcy, let me just clarify, uh, we're talking about Anwar al-Awlaki, the U.S.-born uh, Muslim cleric who had lived in Yemen until he was targeted by the Obama administration and uh, assassinated last year. Eric Holder doesn't like to use the word assassination, but he was uh, killed in a drone strike specifically targeted by the administration last year. Okay, so you were saying that uh, Ron Wyden uh, on the Intelligence Committee in uh, in the Senate had uh, what to say? So he started asking really basic questions like how much evidence is needed before you can target an American citizen? Can you target an American citizen in the United States? And that was, I think, last May. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he started asking the questions again in earnest after Alaki was killed uh, last September. And he still hasn't gotten an answer. And and that, remember, is somebody on the Intelligence Committee. So that's, that's we're not even talking about briefing, say, people on the Judiciary Committee who have more background in law and might have told uh, the Attorney General that, he was misreading Hamdi versus Rumsfeld in that, which required an independent person reviewing a case. Um, you know, a holder on Monday said, you don't need a judge. The Supreme Court has said, you need a judge. Um, 
I think the Supreme Court might disagree with what Eric Holder had to say on Monday. Uh, let me play a quick, a quick clip from Holder on Monday. Uh, Federico, a clip number two. Um, he's talking about this uh, due process versus judicial process. And uh, I'll have a question for you, Marcy, uh, after this, uh, this quick clip. The Supreme Court has made clear that the due process clause does not impose one-size-fits-all requirement. Due process and judicial process are not one and the same, particularly when it comes to national security. The Constitution guarantees due process. It does not guarantee judicial process. Now, <laughs> i got to say, Marcy, uh, Marcy Wheeler, that, that strikes me much, frankly, like Bush's claim, I think it was Alberto Gonzalez, who said that, oh, the Constitution says you cannot take away habeas corpus rights, but it doesn't say that anybody has them in the first place. I mean, it seems that we're just inventing uh, new legal and constitutional concepts in order to justify what had previously been illegal and or unconstitutional behavior isn't this almost the same this this the, the, the inventing these concepts like this well the, the critical difference and and just about the only difference is that bush wanted to hold people indefinitely with no legal review obama wants to kill fewer people but still people including american citizens with no legal review <laughs> and and this is the amazing thing about this to me is that uh, Holder also talked about throughout the speech how you have to go, apparently you have to go to the FISA court, um, to the foreign, and what is it, foreign intelligence, uh, fed, federal intelligence surveillance act court to get permission to spy on someone on their cell phones or, or tap their phones or whatever. But so am I correct that you have to have federal court permission to listen into someone's phone call, but what Eric Holder and Barack Obama are saying here is that no federal court permission is needed to actually kill a U.S. citizen. Well, and that's actually what the judge who reviewed the ACLU sued mm -hmm. for, basically for due process for Amnara Laki once it became clear he was being targeted. And the judge in the case said, this is, he said exactly what you said. I mean, he said, look, this is weird. You need a warrant to wiretap this guy, but but the government is saying they don't need a warrant to kill him or they don't need any kind of judicial review to kill him. Now, he threw out the case based on standing, and it was basically his uh, Alaki's father was the guy who sued, and the judge said, well, you're the father, you can't sue. But the judge clearly said it was troublesome for precisely the reason you say, is, you know, if we believe you need warrants just to go in somebody's house or to tap their phone, then... There must be some requirement for further judicial review before you kill an American citizen. And what was the result of that case? It was thrown out. It was thrown out on standing ground. So, so we never really so had, it, yeah. So yeah, so it didn't. It, it the the judge never actually reviewed the merits. Although it's interesting because the in addition to the legal arguments that Alaki's father did not have standing, the government said just you know, kind of blanketed everything having to do with Al-Aki with a state secrets invocation. Mm -hmm. so basically saying there's no way we can litigate this because everything about it is secret, including, you know, what intelligence we use, including what our relationship with Yemen is. And since Al-Aki's been killed, one after another after another of Obama's senior administration officials, including Holder on Monday, have been 
addressing precisely the kind of issues that the government told a court were a state secret. You see, this is I, I'm, I, I've been digging into this speech again while everybody's paying attention to presidential politics and Rush Limbaugh and the nonsense. I've been looking at digging into the speech and trying to figure out where I have it wrong, how I must certainly misunderstand the Obama administration's position. Let me play an, uh, one more clip here from Eric Holder, clip number three, uh, uh, Federico, and then we'll talk about this. In response to the attacks perpetrated and the continuing threat posed by al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, Congress has authorized the president to use all necessary and appropriate force against those groups. Because the United States is in an armed conflict, we are authorized to take action against enemy belligerents under international law. Okay, is there any daylight between, that was Eric Holder speaking this Monday, uh, Attorney General on behalf of the Obama administration, is there any daylight in that position just stated by Eric Holder and the George W. Bush administration for the eight years earlier when it comes to what they believe is their right to pretty much do anything they want because we're in a war on terror, and way back in 2001, after 9-11, Congress gave them permission, they believe, to do just about anything they want. Is there any difference between those two positions? Um, that argument that Holder made, it comes directly from an argument that Jack Goldsmith, who was a Bush lawyer, made in 2004, when they decided they had to stop relying on all of John Yu's memos. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it, it, it isn't the argument they used at the beginning. I mean, John Yu said, Article 2, the president has unlimited powers, and therefore he can do whatever he wants. What Jack Goldsmith did, and everybody sent him, him, including Eric Holder on Monday, said, well, Congress, with the Afghanistan AUMF, authorized everything the president wants to do, which works out to be almost exactly what John Yu said, but it has slightly better legal cover. Um, and that's what that's exactly what the Obama administration has relied on for wiretapping, for geolocation, and for killing American citizens. So it, it, it does go back to the Bush administration, to 2004. Holder said that the U.S. government uh, could legally target a, a senior operational al-Qaeda leader who is actively engaged in planning to kill Americans and then he set up uh, three tests. One, uh, this al-Qaeda leader must uh, have opposed an, Im an imminent threat of violence. And actually, it, it, I don't know if it has to be only al-Qaeda leaders, but um, <clears throat> he says that the, the president can decide to target an individual, even a U.S. citizen, if they, one, posed an imminent threat of violence, two, could not feasibly be captured, and three, if the operation was conducted in line with war principles, uh, such as use of legal force uh, against that type of individual and so forth. Um, did Al-Awlaki, the U.S.-born cleric, actually meet those three tests? Specifically, did he pose an imminent threat of violence to the U.S.? And if so, do they have any evidence of that, of that or do we just take their word for it? Well, thus far, they're asking us to take their word for it. The only evidence the government has submitted, um, and I'm glad you also mentioned the senior leader part, because that's where Holder was particularly fishy on Monday. The only evidence they've presented is a document that they um, used in the sentencing of the underwear bomber um, last month. And 
they submitted a summary of what they claimed was what the underwear bomber had said during plea negotiations. Now, and, and in that, uh, Abdul Matala, the underwear bomber, clearly said that Alaki, back in uh, early December 2009, told him not to ignite his bomb until he was over the United States. So that's that's the threat that all of this is based off of, is that Alaki supposedly ordered um, Abdul Matala in, in December 2009, in de- December 2009, um, to wait until he was over the United States to blow up the plane. Now, did he order? Do we know? Did he order him to do it? And mind you, we're we're taking the word of the underwear bomber, I guess, on this. Did he? order him to do it or did he advise him did he say oh it would be a good idea did he put out uh you know email saying hey if you're going to blow up the united states on a plane it's best to wait until the plane is over the u.s i mean do we have any evidence to even back up this claim i mean even calling it an order makes it sound like uh he is uh you know issuing orders as a, a al-qaeda leadership or something doesn't even that overstate the actual evidence that we have marcy willer well, I think you should take a step back and 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 ask why the government didn't use that same summary in the lackey, in in sorry in the underwear bombers trial, uh, which effectively lasted one day because he ended up pleading guilty, um, which was just about two weeks after Alaki was killed, um, because there they didn't say that the underwear bomber had implicated Alaki. They said he had implicated somebody else, and so. You know, one of the questions, and in fact, uh, the Underwear Bombers standby lawyer had made this argument saying, you know, this narrative was collected when you were trying to, you were making promises to the Underwear Bomber about, you know, reduced time or what have you. Uh, you should never be able to use this. And so I think there are legitimate questions to ask about why they, you know, why they didn't use it in the trial when when the narrative would be challenged in court and why they then did use it when there would be no opportunity for anybody to challenge the evidence. To challenge it. So, in other words, uh, when they're interrogating the underwear bomber, they say to him, hey, we'd we'd really like to get this uh, all a lucky. We'd really like to have some evidence against him. And uh, if you cooperate with us and tell us what you know about him, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll cut you a break. And he says, oh, yeah, well, uh, I was in touch with him and he directly ordered me to uh, light off this bomb once the plane was over the United States. That could be the extent of it. And that is something that nobody has ever even been able to challenge or rebut in a court of law or any anywhere else. The government didn't even use that information in their case. But Eric Holder did on Monday when he gives a speech at Northwestern Law University. Well, the other thing that Eric Holder did further, I mean, so I'm willing to grant that that the underwear bomber, that somebody told the underwear bomber, and we can, you know, argue about whether it was an order or mm-hmm. an instruction or what have you. Somebody said, wait until you're over the United States before you ignite your bomb. Right. I'll grant you that. It may be, you know, it, I'll grant you that, that there's a good chance it was Al-Laki. But all that aside, that doesn't make Al-Laki the operational leader of Al-Qaeda in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, which is the other thing that Holder said. And he implied that the underwear bomber had said it in his speech. So he, you know, he said, uh, Abdul Mutalib said, ex-line, Abdul Mutalib said Al-Laki, who is a U.S. citizen and the operational leader of AQAP, but there's nothing in anything they submitted from the underwear bomber where he said that, where he said that Alaki was 
the operational leader. And that's particularly interesting because it seems like they used it in their rationale to kill him, So, which they decided in June 2010. That's when DOJ said, okay, this is cool. And then if you remember the, the toner cartridge plot that, that um, un, unrolled in, I think, October 2010, remember that one? Uh, somewhat. Remind me. I... Same thing. It was out of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Right. They were sending toner cartridges. They were basically checking toner. toner uh, oh, that's right. Through the packages, time. the UPS packages or something, they found toner cartridges that were supposed to be explosive or something. Right, and they were sending them to synagogues in the United right. States, and the same kind of explosives were in these in these printers. Right. We learned about that plot from what uh, appears to be a double agent, a guy that, that was maybe recruited at Gitmo, released to Saudi custody. He, quote-unquote, escaped from Saudi custody, went and joined AQAP, and then came back and told the Saudis about this plot just in time to stop it. Right. Um, guy by the name of Dabir al-Faisi. Okay. Um, so he's back in Saudi custody in 2010, and he said that other people were the more important leaders of AQAP. Uh, other people, meaning other people, not al-Awlaki. Not al-Awlaki. Um, and so we got that, you know, and I'm not, it's not entirely clear what al he said. But what we do know is he said a theory, who's the bomb maker, who somebody on Bill Mattel supposedly also talked about, was a much more important figure in AQAP. Um, and so if that's the case, you know, did we get information? Did the United States get information after the legal approval was already given, but before we actually killed Al-Awlaki, uh, that said, well, maybe he's not the operational leader of AQAP. I mean, he was certainly the inspirational uh, recruiter for English-speaker, right. English-speaking recruits, um, you know, but, but, but we don't know. Those are, the, those are the two biggest data points we know, which is that, he clearly had some contact with Abdul Muttalib. People say he was involved in the Turner Cartridge pro- uh, project, but but it sounds like maybe he didn't have the same operational leading role. Okay, now see, um, all of this, Marcy, uh, we're speaking with Marcy Wheeler uh, from Empty Wheel, EmptyWheel.net. All of this underscores... I, the, the fact that we're even going through the weeds like this, trying to figure out what, if any, evidence actually exists against a U.S. citizen who is targeted by the government uh, for assassination and successfully killed uh, underscores what to me is just the bigger picture here is how troubling this really is, that we are left to simply trust in any president, whether it's Obama or uh, President Palin or whoever it is. I mean, essentially, that's the policy. It's a trust me policy. We're supposed to trust in whoever happens to be the president. I mean, it does. Holder said a citizen, quote, citizenship alone does not make such individuals immune from being targeted. OK, well, what about if they're here in the U.S.? Uh, does that keep them from being targeted, or is that too pretty much up to whoever happens to be the president of the United States? Right, because um, Holder was all over the map. I mean, he made it very clear that the AUMF gives the government authority well beyond Afghanistan, which is where it was originally targeted. You mm-hmm. know, obviously he's saying Yemen, but he also talks about people within our border. So in the same speech where he's talking about the legal authority to target American citizens, he's talking about the battlefield being in the United States as well as Yemen and Afghanistan. 
And as I said, I mean, that's one of the questions that even somebody on the Intelligence Committee doesn't know the answer to. So the, the, the policy that we're left with is based on, you know, I know a lot of Democrats, a lot of supporters of Obama say, yeah, you know, he's OK. He's not going to hurt us. We have nothing to worry about. But I think that's rather short sighted, even if it is true. It seems to me extraordinarily short sighted because, you know, is there anything set forth currently in this law, Marcy, uh, or in the Obama holder policies to keep, let's say, a President Palin from declaring, let's say, uh, a progressive blogger like Marcy Wheeler at uh, EmptyWheel.net, from declaring you as a terrorist combatant, an enemy combatant, and a threat who must be targeted for assassination. If that's what President Palin decides, is there anything currently in law or even in the Obama administration policies that would keep that from happening or that would afford you some form of due process before they kill you? You know, I'd like to say that they're still requiring people they target to have engaged in hostilities. But an even more important case than Anwar al-Awlaki is the guy who who died the same day in the same strike, a guy by the name of Samir Khan. Yeah. Um, and the only allegation about him, I mean, nobody's ever claimed that he was making bombs and sending them to the United States. I mean, at least they're claiming that about Alaki, even if they haven't shown us the proof. Nobody's ever claimed he's anything but a propagandist, right? Yeah. So in your case, Sarah Palin can say, well, we killed Samir Khan as a propagandist, so why can't we kill Marcy Wheeler? She's a propagandist, too. So is Brad Friedman. So is anybody who has a radio show. And so, you know, there are there are things you can point to to say, oh, no, they would never do that. But they, in fact, killed an American citizen who was nothing but, I mean, he, he was an evil propagandist. He said horrible things, but he was still nothing but a propagandist who had the misfortune of sitting next to a guy that they claimed had sent bombs to the United States. Without evidence to actually back it up for the people. This is, uh, I'm afraid, as troubling as it sounds, uh, we'll be talking more about this, no doubt, in the months ahead, if we can pull our attention away from uh, Rush Limbaugh and his contraceptives. Marcy Wheeler uh, from Empty Wheel, EmptyWheel.net. She's the author of Anatomy of Deceit, How the Bush Administration Used the Media to Sell the Iraq War and Out a Spy. Marcy, uh, thank you for uh, for talking to us today here. Unfortunately, you haven't yet talked me off the ledge, but maybe we'll, I'll give you another try next time. <laughs> I'm comfortable up here on the ledge with you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Marcy. You're great. Uh, man, brother. Okay. We got much more ahead. Um, I, I'm just blown away by this. I was hoping there was something that I was misunderstanding, but apparently I wasn't. This is a public service Right not to be killed. You used to have that in this country. Ain't not so much anymore. Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. We're going to take a quick break here. Come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News to try to cheer me up. 
Can you do that, Des? You got anything happy for? I doubt it. All right. And then uh, some more election news, some voting news, some voter fraud news. Uh, somehow or another, I'm going to be cheered up before all this is said and done. Uh, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay with us. KPFK would like to thank the following generous food donors for helping to feed our volunteers during our winter fun drive. Stuff I Eat, fine vegan cuisine in Inglewood, thanks, Danielle. Rolling Stone Restaurant and Lounge, cuisine with Americana roots and a global reach in the spirit of the magazine that changed the world, adjacent to the Kodak Theater in Hollywood. Pie Bake Shop, that's P-I as in 3.14, delivering sweet and savory pies, that's P-I-E as in delicious. Special thanks to Lila Garrett for the gene pool. North Hollywood Ice on Craner in North Hollywood. Western Bagel on Ventura in Studio City. Pete's Coffee on Lake in Pasadena. Special thanks to Vanessa and the gang at Pete's. Nutiva Natural Snacks. Mountain Valley Water. When you visit these fine establishments, please thank them for donating to your favorite radio station, KPFK. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over. Uh Uh-huh. Because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. Oh, yes, that can mean only one thing. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. By the way, you can Twitter me at uh, TheBradBlog if you'd like to try to cheer me up. Good luck at that. In any case, that music can mean only one thing. The lovely uh, Desi Doyen, our producer and my co-host on the national, nationally syndicated Green News Report, joins me, as promised, to cheer me up. Sorry, I don't have much to cheer you up with. Thank you. <laughs> Get out. Uh, <clears throat> today, uh, today's Green News Report, is there anything in there that's going to cheer me up or anybody probably else? not but it's some very interesting things that you might you know be we've interested been gone in. for a month and then you come back here and uh you start depressing everyone with your uh, eric holder with your green news okay that was my fault the eric holder but your green news let's find out how much that depresses us uh let's listen to the latest uh, green news report and then we'll come back with uh with desi doyen for some more uh questions and drilling and perhaps even targeted assassination Already there's too much loose talk of war. Iran war talk jacks up U.S. gas prices. If it continues to go higher, it will crater the economy by August. As Republicans cheer. Echoes of McCarthyism. A Virginia court smacks down a climate denier witch hunt. The new normal for tornado season. Plus... Besides compensation, they want the truth. Two years after disaster, BP settles with Gulf Coast residents. Oops. Do we have a problem with the uh, audio, uh, Federico? We, I think we do. I did. Okay. My mistake. Actually, we, uh, we screwed up the audio, didn't we? Oh, that's a shame. That's okay. That's right. You can tell me what we were going to say. Sorry about that problem with the audio. Uh, my fault there. Uh, what, what were we talking well, we about were on today's Green talking News Report? About... We'll just do it live. <laughs> yes, we will. We'll, we'll do it live! One of the things that uh, we were talking about yeah. was that President Obama, in his speech last week right. at APAC, the APAC conference, he was telling Republicans and other people, not specifically in so many words, but he was saying there's too much talk of war with Iran or tensions with Iran, and that is raising gas prices. That is one of the issues that is coming into play in the 
election has, with the Republican presidential campaign. Very much coming into the presidential election. Uh, Super Tuesday last night, all of the uh, uh, candidates, after they won their respective states yesterday, came out and talked about this. Gas prices. It's Barack Obama's fault. He's not drilling enough. He hasn't improved the Keystone Pipeline. So let's very quickly go through a couple of those points. One, uh, drilling in uh, in the U.S. is up under Barack Obama? Is yes, it not? it's at its highest level since 2003. Okay. Now, that is a combination of policies enacted by the Bush administration and the Obama administration. But right now, the U.S. actually exports more oil than it imports at this time. And that's a that's a pretty big deal. So when uh, Newt Gingrich and Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum, for example, all say that they will do these, they will drill more, drill here, here drill everywhere, approve the Keystone XL pipeline, these actually will not change gas prices. The U.S. does not have enough supply to affect the the global oil market. Actually, uh, and, and, and the price of oil is set on the global market. And actually, though, it may affect the price, uh, Keystone Pipeline. In fact, a recent study, as you talked about recently on the Green News Report, uh, was it uh, the Bloomberg News came out and confirmed the study by the environmental activists who, sh- who found that, in fact, the Keystone XL pipeline would actually raise gas prices for people in the Midwest and the Rocky Mountains Why? states because Why? there is an oil glut right now <clears throat> where the current Keystone small pipeline ends in Cushing, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and because there's a glut and more oil than they can than they can sell right now, prices in the Midwest and the Rocky Mountains are actually lower than they are for the rest of the country. And by building the Keystone XL pipeline, enabling them to ship that oil all the way to the Texas Gulf Coast ports and refineries, then and that would end that glut and actually raise prices. And TransCanada, the pipeline company from Canada that wants to build this pipeline across right. the United States, actually says so in all of its filing uh, filing that it has made for this particular pipeline, that the idea is to take care of the glut in Oklahoma, ship it straight to Texas ports so they can then ship it to Overseas markets, which would then, China, of course, raise overseas, the price. and yes. and so TransCanada actually tells us this. They also tell us that it will bring four hundred jobs. I think was their their estimate of how many permanent jobs Let, uh, yes, would, some, would come from the Keystone. Even <clears> possibly <throat> an independent study also said that uh, from Cornell University that the permanent jobs could be as few as twenty to one hundred and twenty <laughs> jobs. Twenty. So there are a couple of thousand temporary construction jobs. So once the pipeline is in operation, the Keystone. Excel pipeline, if approved, it would actually only offer a handful. And yet this is being used by a bl- as a bludgeon by every single uh, Republican presidential candidate as a bludgeon against Barack Obama. Keystone XL pipeline, it would we got to get it built because it will lower gas prices, because it will increase jobs. All of it. Bunk. Not true. Not okay. true at all. And, and, and when you yeah. find, like, for example, uh, Newt Gingrich in his victory speech last night yes. at the Georgia primary for the Republican uh, presidential nomination, he had, I swear, a litany of lies that if I had the whole uh, the Green News speech report. right now, then I could point out to you what he was saying. But again, the president can do almost nothing. No president, Republican or Democrat, can do almost anything to change the price of oil or the price of gas at the pump. So when they say that they can bring it down to $2.50, $2.50 or any cents? amount at all, they can't. That's said it was not easy. true. In fact, the only easy. way that that could uh, happen is, you know, gas prices generally drop when there's a drop in consumption. Mm-hmm. Drop in consumption generally happens when there's a drop in economic activity, say a recession. So if Newt wants to promise $2.50 gas, 
um, he might be promising a recession. I don't know. Well, he did sound pretty giddy about the uh, outlook for the economy coming up. In he the fall. was saying okay. that it will actually help Republicans get elected. In okay, other words. a couple of other uh, things on our uh, Green News report this week, and you can hear the actual Green News report at greennews.bradblog.com. The we full had, thing. The full thing. We had some trouble with the audio. So uh, very quickly, though, Des, uh, a couple of items that we did uh, cover uh, over the last week. We have seen. Not one, but two EF4 tornadoes in the Midwest. Uh, EF4 was a second highest level, I the guess. Second the second highest. The highest is five. These, the strongest is five. Right. This is four. And these were of those two that came through those massive storm systems just two in the last week. This is already the deadliest march in 20 years uh, in the United States for tornado season. And it is a remarkably early tornado season because of the warm waters of the Gulf, you know, mixing with the, just this very mild winter that we've been having. You know, it's, it's, this is one it's, of the things that scientists are saying that we are likely to see more of these early early tornado seasons, more intense tornado seasons. You know, you can't tie one tornado directly to global warming, but you can say that it is loading up the gun and putting the weather system on steroids. And they have been saying that. For decades. For decades. Uh, and I mean, it's, like a, it's like a bad Steven Spielberg movie. Or a good one, I don't know, with with these EF4s, one after another. Uh, I don't know that when we've ever seen something like this before. Okay, finally, uh, here's some good news. BP. Yes. Uh, BP in the Gulf, uh, everything's fine. They've settled with the plaintiffs. Everybody's uh, well, happy. It cost BP a fortune. They right? did settle out of court yeah. with a lot of the plaintiffs. There were 120,000 plaintiffs from uh, residents to business owners to restaurant and hotels and condos. They settled with uh, an initial partial settlement of $7.8 billion is the estimate. And, again, this is a proposed settlement. It still has to go through the process. Okay. But uh, BP estimates it will be $7.8 billion. And one of the things that we pointed out uh, in this proposed settlement is that that's about equivalent to BP's fourth quarter profits for 2011. One quarter in 2011, about $8 billion. That's what about they're going to spend to uh, to help Settle these claims from people who were damaged by the oil spill in 2010. It cost them one quarter, one quarter's worth of profit for what they did in the Gulf, the nation's, the, the, the worst oil disaster in the history in the of the nation. In the nation's history, yes. One quarter's worth of profits. Now, it doesn't, con- this uh, settlement does not include uh, fines or damages from okay. the federal or state governments, okay. and federal alone at the, is estimated to be as much as $18 billion, and BP says they have already paid out about $14 billion. Sounds like they're getting off pretty easy. Right. And, of course, the plaintiffs can still choose not to be a part of the settlement, and they can sue on their own if they like. Oh, so there sure, are because the plaintiffs have plenty of money to go to court to take on BP. But the good news is the yeah. trial will go through down yeah. in New Orleans. Uh, this federal trial will continue, and that's really important. A lot of the plaintiffs are saying, you know, so for the federal government and the state government, there are 72 million documents, pages of documents that are involved in this. So the process of discovery and airing out all of these facts and figures is something that they're all looking forward to. That's the lovely Desi Doyen, our uh, producer here on the broadcast and my co-host of the Green News Report. Check out our full report today and all of those that you missed, by the way, over the past month at greennews.bradblog.com. You can also subscribe so you don't miss one thrilling episode of the <laughs> Green News Report uh, at, uh, at iTunes. You can listen on your mobile device via Stitcher Radio. And you can follow Desi 
uh, mouthing off on the Twitters about uh, Green News issues uh, 24-7 at... Green News Report. On the Twitters. Thank you, Des. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, we're, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to your calls or not. I, I uh, want to welcome you back uh, to our airwaves uh, since I've been gone for a month. And uh, I always like to have phone calls when we have time. We'll see if I have time. Uh, but I don't know. I've got a backlog, a month worth of information that you need to know that ain't nobody out there telling you about. Uh, which one should I start with? Okay. First, uh, this is concerning elections and concerning the horse race. I'm sorry. The track conditions. Everyone else in the world covers the horse race. Very few people bother to look at the track conditions. And we look closely at those track conditions. We look closely at the uh, the reported numbers to see if they make sense. For example, last night during Super Tuesday, uh, Dennis Kucinich lost in his primary battle against Marcy Kaptur. Uh, Ohio had lost two congressional districts this year, so they, uh, the Republicans out there, in hopes of getting rid of a progressive in Congress, decided to combine Marcy Captor, uh, Marcy Captor's district with Dennis Kucinich. And, uh, interestingly enough, I was looking at the numbers late last night in Lucas County, which is, uh, Toledo, Ohio. And of course, that was the district that Marcy Captor had, uh, had rep- previously represented. And somehow, how or another, she managed to beat Dennis Kucinich in that district, Toledo, Ohio. Now, granted, it was her, uh, her her district in the past. However, she managed to beat him 22,000, more than 22,000 votes to 900 votes, reportedly. If you believe the 100% unverifiable touchscreens that they use across the entirety of Lucas County. That was, uh, I think it was 94 point something percent to... Three point something percent? Is that possible? Is that even legitimate? I mean, those are Saddam Hussein numbers, 94% to 3. I've been digging into that, trying to figure it out. Uh, it won't be easy to figure out because, as I say, the voting machines are 100% unverifiable. They happen to be made by Diebold out there. They're touchscreen voting systems. Um, <clears throat> if anybody out there listening has any idea, feel free to drop me a line at uh, brad at bradblog.com uh, to explain those uh, seemingly extraordinary numbers. I'm going to try to find out more as we move forward. Keep in mind that when it comes to elections and election integrity, uh, often problems like this don't surface until days and weeks after the election. Uh, once numbers are actually released, you know, on election night, people look at the, the, the county numbers as a whole or the, uh, the congressional district in this case as a whole. Precinct by precinct numbers, we don't, uh, we don't actually look at those things. Uh, it has taken two years since we have just now found out, I believe it was two weeks ago, the New York Daily News uh, released a story finding that uh, after having made a public records request for ballots, paper ballots cast in a South Bronx precinct back in 2002, they discovered that the paper ballot optical scan systems made by ESNS and used across pretty much the entire country that those optical scan systems had miscounted the paper ballots, uh, had miscounted 70% of those paper ballots in the primary election in 2010 up there in New York, and 54% of them were miscounted in the actual general election in 2010. This took us two years to find out. 
because they won't hand-count the paper ballots in front of the people. So we are left to simply trust. All right, more on that in the coming weeks, no doubt, as well. Right now, one of the most troubling things that's going on are the uh, photo ID restrictions at the polling place, keeping voters from being able to cast their legal vote. Yesterday, Tennessee was one of the uh, 10 states that had contests in Super Tuesday. And 55-year-old uh, former U.S. Marine Tim Thompson was turned away from the polls after he refused to show his photo ID. He's a former Marine. He was a Lance Corporal uh, back in the 70s. Uh, and he felt uh, that uh, th- this restriction on his right to vote was outrageous, was disenfranchising to uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of previously legal voters until this Republican law took place in Tennessee. And here's just a clip of his, of Tim Thompson's confrontation uh, at the, uh, with the polling place supervisor yesterday in Nashville. This is my voter registration card. Yes, sir. I've used this for 37 years. This was good enough for my father. It was good enough for my grandfather. And I refuse to show you a picture ID. That's fine. Would you like to vote on visual ballot? No, I do not. Uh, you don't get me right. I object to the law. I'm objecting to the law that they implemented on my right to vote. I'm a former U.S. Marine. Yes, sir. And you have no right to restrict me from voting today. Uh, the law has no right. I served my country. I served my country so you could vote. I've earned my right to vote. This is my ID. This is my ID. And I'll be damned if I'll stand here and allow you to not let me vote because some governor of this state decided he wanted to eliminate my right to vote and put conditions on it that I fought for. That was down in Tennessee. That was uh, Tim Thompson, a former U.S. Marine, uh, and he ended up not voting as, as a means of protest yesterday in Tennessee under their first implementation of the photo ID restriction law that uh, Republicans put in place despite the fact that uh, hundreds of thousands of voters do not have the type of photo ID, legal voters do not have the type of uh, ID that would be needed to vote, specifically uh, and disproportionately minorities, the elderly, and students. Over the last couple of weeks, we also saw up in Wisconsin the very first full implementation of their photo ID restriction law. And once again, we saw voters turned away from the polls because they didn't have a photo ID. In fact, voters who had voted at the same precinct, voters who knew the poll workers who were forced to turn them away because they didn't have a photo ID. There was a a couple, and you can read about it at bradblog.com. There was a a couple who had been in an automobile accident, uh, had been disabled, hadn't had time to go and get one of these so-called free IDs at the DMV up in Wisconsin. They were turned away. They were unable to vote. The good news, however... Yesterday, and I'll read this from Project Vote, Wisconsin voters will not need to show an ID to vote in the April 3 primary and local general election thanks to a Dane County judge who granted a temporary injunction against the new law today. Circuit Court Judge David Flanagan called the voter ID measure, quote, the single most restrictive voter eligibility law in the nation, according to the Associated Press. 
Quote, the NAACP's Milwaukee branch and immigration rights groups, uh, uh, Voices de la Frontera, uh, it's, it's Spanish. Uh, Voces de la Frontera sued over the, la- over the law last year. A trial on whether to grant a permanent injunction is currently scheduled for April 16th. The groups assert that more than 220,000 eligible voters would be unable to prove identity to vote under the new law. The scope of the impairment has been shown to be serious, extremely broad, and nar- largely needless. Judge Flanagan wrote in his court order, there is no doubt that the plaintiffs have shown a very substantial likelihood of success on the merits. Of course, the state is expected to appeal the decision. Uh, the judge found that it was uh, unconstitutional under the Wisconsin state law. That's good news. Good news for Wisconsin voters of any stripe of any party. But the fight continues. As I said earlier, Pennsylvania today has approved a photo ID restriction law. In the meantime, let's move the clock back to Indiana. Indiana, the first state in the union to implement a photo ID restriction law uh, to be approved by the U.S. Supreme Court. Their own secretary of state, Charlie White, who was elected in 2010, was found guilty last month of three counts of felony voter fraud. That's right, the Republican Secretary of State, the chief election official in the first state in the union to institute one of these voter-suppressing, disenfranchising photo ID laws, the chief election official, Charlie White, was found guilty of three felony counts of voter fraud. It turns out he was registered to vote from someplace that he did not live, and he voted from that uh, address where he did not live. Three felony voter fraud counts and uh, six felonies uh, overall for Charlie White. He's now been removed from office. But wait until you hear what the criminal penalty is that Charlie White received. Before I tell you what Charlie White received for three felony voter fraud counts and six felonies overall, let me tell you very quickly about Kimberly Prude. She was a 43-year-old woman, African-American woman, up in Wisconsin, who back in 2004 participated in uh, in an election rally leading up to the presidential election. And she marched with a bunch of others to City Hall. And at City Hall, she registered to vote. And uh, before Election Day came around, she asked for an absentee ballot because Kimberly Prude was going to be working as a poll worker, doing a patriotic duty, working as a poll worker on Election Day. So she decided to vote uh, by absentee ballot. That's all well and good. Until um, it uh, turned out that four years earlier, Kimberly Prude had written a bad check. And Kimberly Prude, though she never went to jail, was a felon on probation. Now, because she never went to jail, she didn't know that her voting rights were restricted. But she found out, in fact, they were in the state of Wisconsin. So she, uh, from her uh, probation officer, in fact. So she called up City Hall. She tried to rescind her own vote, let her know that she had accidentally voted by absentee, that she was not allowed to do that. She only just learned it. She had done it because she was going to be uh, working uh, on election day at the polls. Her thanks under the Bush administration, Kimberly Prude was sent to jail for that offense for more than a year. For turning herself in. Meanwhile, down in Tallahassee, Pakistani uh, uh, national Usman Ali, a 68-year-old jeweler, uh, 
was handed a bunch of forms when he went to renew his driver's license, and one of them was a voter registration form. He never voted. He did fill out the form, though. He had no idea uh, what it was when he turned it in. Usman Ali, who had been here for 10 years, was sent to Pakistan, was deported to Pakistan, and faced separation from his American wife and his American child unless they went with him. He was a stranger in his own country. He never cast any legal vote, and he was deported from this country. Charlie White, meanwhile, the top election official in the state of Indiana, committed three felony voter fraud uh, accounts and uh, three other felonies. He was found guilty in a court of law. He was removed from office. His penalty, he didn't go to jail for more than a year like Kimberly Prude. He wasn't deported to another country. He was the senior election official in the state of Indiana, the first one to implement photo ID restrictions. And what happened to Charlie White? He received one year of home detention just uh, over a week ago. That is Charlie White's penalty. That is equal justice in these United States. You can read more about that story at bradblog.com. Obviously, I'm outraged about it. Obviously, I've got much more information to give you on uh, on that story and many others that we have missed over the past week. By the way, if you want to check out that full clip of, uh, of uh, Tim Thompson confronting the uh, poll worker down there in Tennessee, you can see that at bradblog.com. And oh yes, some 21 million Americans don't have the type of photo ID restrictions that Republicans are trying to require to cast your legal vote before the 2012 election. Now why would they want to do that? We'll be back next week. Same Brad time, same Brad channel, right here Wednesdays, 3 p.m. on KPFK. It's good to be back. We'll be back again next week. Until then, uh, you can Twitter me at the Brad Blog, and you can find me at bradblog.com. My thanks to producer Desi Doyen, associate, associate producer Margo Paez, our engineer, uh, Feder- Federico Garcia, stay tuned for John Wiener and the 4 O'Clock Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America.